Yo, Chad, what if I told you there's a platform that could completely revolutionize your hiring strategy in a matter of hours? Yeah, I'd call bullshit. Well, it's not bullshit with AI for jobs powered by our friends at This Way Global. Okay, I'm listening. Uh, While everyone else is fishing in the same old talent pools, AI for Jobs can source over 160 million diverse candidate profiles. This Way Global has established unique partnerships with over 8,500 trusted diversity partners. So wait a minute. All of the hard on-the-ground work is already done. That's right, Cowboy. You can discover 300 qualified candidates per job rack instantly. Wow. It's like having a candidate sourcing magic wand. (laughs) Dude, if you had a magic wand, you would have Mexican pizzas all day. Mm. Uh, Stop distracting me, Sowash. AI for Jobs Advanced Matching Algorithm analyzes past applicants using trillions of historical matching events and over 1,600 data points. Now that is what AI should be doing, saving recruiters time on sourcing while they provide a white glove candidate experience. Let's wrap this shit up. I'm hungry. Listen up, kids. Revolutionize your hiring process today by jumping over to thiswayglobal.com and checking out AI for Jobs, where you can learn more about how to leverage AI for your recruiting instead of just writing poems and grocery lists. That is thiswayglobal.com. We We out. Hide your kids. Lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, brash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Yeah, you know what's up, everybody. It's your two favorite middle-aged white guys, also known as the Chad and Cheese Podcast. I'm your co-host, Joel Cheeseman. Joined, as always, the Robin to my Batman, Chad Sowash. And today, an interview like we've never done before. He's a B-list actor and an A-list corporate spy. If that doesn't keep you listening, I don't know what will. Let's welcome Robert Kerbeck to the show. Robert, how are you? And where are you calling from, Mr. Corporate Spy? Yeah, if I told you that, I'd have to take you out back and shoot you. Oh, shit. (laughs) Nobody wants that. I'm calling from sunny Malibu, California. Ah, Oh, that's just awful. That sounds horrible. That sounds fucking horrible. Uh, (laughs) I got to say, Robert, I don't know who your PR firm is, but we, we get requests probably about... 20 requests a day to come on the show uh, to do interviews. And generally, if something's not like really spot on topic for, you know, for, for what we do in our industry, I kick that shit to the curb. I saw yours and it does play around the fringes. We're going to talk about that today. The bio stands out. The bio is kind of interesting. Yeah. The bio is incredible. But, but, but the book, Ruse, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street, this is an amazing book. We're going to talk about that. We're going to get into that. But before we do, give us a little Twitter bio about you, and then we're just going to roll right into it. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I was a young guy. I'm from Philadelphia. My great-grandfather sold horse carriages before cars were invented. My grandfather took over the dealership. My father took over the dealership, and I was supposed to take over the dealership. And when I was in college, I kind of stumbled into acting. I fell in love with it. 
wanted to move to New York to try to become an actor. And of course, actors need survival jobs. And so I went to New York and somehow I stumbled into a job as a corporate spy. You stumbled. Okay. Let's, (laughs) let's, 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 Let's run through this shit real quick. Okay. First and foremost, it's interesting because, I mean, you obviously have the DNA embedded from a gift of gab sales kind of scenario, which also rolls into, I think, acting. Uh, there's a good amount of, you know, ego that's there, not to mention you're a good looking kind of guy. How the hell? So I can see those two, right? I have no fucking clue. How do you go from that to corporate espionage? Was there a job posting? Was there a job posting in the <laughs> Tribune or something? Like, Yeah. Did you go to monster.com? I mean, what the hell? <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Yeah, they of course they didn't have monster.com back in the day. Uh, and, and even and even today I don't know that you're going to see a lot of corporate espionage listings, right? Yeah, you know, my college roommate's brother uh was living in New York and he kind of offered to show me the ropes and one day he he kind of mysteriously mentioned this job and then he shut up right away and I said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, hey, hey, you know I need a job. Well, what's what's going on with that?" Oh, man. Uh, and very mysterious about it. But finally, you know, I twisted his arm uh, and he got me this interview with this woman um, and I go up to her apartment. With- Wait a minute. That seems like a sales technique to me because you can draw somebody and you feel like kind of like that. Well, I got a secret here. And then was that part of it? Well, he wasn't rusing me, if that's what you're asking. Okay, okay. Yes, I was, yes. So I go to the Upper East Side, which is uh, your listeners may know is kind of the ritziest area of Manhattan. And it's a doorman building. I take the elevator up to the penthouse. Uh, This woman opens the door. I remember her now, um, like holding a martini, smoking a cigarette. But maybe that's just the (laughs) actor in me exaggerating the story a little bit. Nice ascot. She takes me into this apartment, which was for sure the nicest, you know, luxury apartment I'd ever been into. Everything was white. Everything was pristine. And right away, I knew whatever she was doing, it was lucrative. She was making a ton of money. And she proceeds to do this interview where she never asks me a single question about my skills, uh, what I do. I had a resume. She never asked to see it. She just asked about my relationship with my father and how he was taking me not coming into the family business, which, of course, really put me off. I, I was confused and surprised. You know, I didn't know why she was asking about my dad and my relationship with my dad. And, and she sends me on my way. And I'm pretty sure I haven't gotten the job. And then my buddy calls and he says, you're hired, but don't get too excited because she hires everyone because no one is able to do this job. Wow. What year is this, by the way? This is late 80s. Okay. So this is the height of like Gordon Gecko, Michael Milken. This is, this is New York is a rocking, greedy place at this point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And so then the next day I went and I started training for this job and I, I go out to Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And this is back in the day when Williamsburg wasn't filled uh, with coffee shops and hipsters with beards. Uh, <laughs> there were you know just crack addicts running the streets. And it was very scary, very dangerous. I go into this building. I'm hearing yelling, screaming. I walk up. The, you know, there's no elevator in this building. I walk up to the fourth floor, knock on this door. And this adorable young uh, woman opens it. She's got a bit of an Irish accent. Um, and she says, come on in. You'll work in my bedroom. And I still have no idea what this job is, what the heck is going on. <laughs> it sounds like working in her bedroom kind of gives you an idea of what the job might be. It sounds, you might be like a gigolo at this point. <laughs> yeah, which, by the way, I think I would have been fine with that, too. I needed money. <laughs> and so 
she she takes me and she sits me down at this little desk in her in her bedroom, which had I think a desk and a futon on the ground, and um, and she begins to tell me what we're doing, and she says, "Look, what we're doing is we're finding out secret information about Wall Street firms." And she begins to uh, train me as to how we do that, the process of how we get people who mm-hmm. are trained, who many of whom have advanced degrees, MBAs, whatever, how we get them, how we trick them, how we ruse them, hence the title of the book, mm-hmm. um, how we ruse them to give us information that they should never, ever give us. So what was your first call? Who was it to? What kind of information were you looking to find? Was it successful? Or do you know what you're going to find? Or do things just reveal themselves to you? How does this typically work? Good question. Yeah. So my first call, of course, was a disaster. Uh, and <laughs> most of my initial calls were disasters because, as you, you may gather, you know, being a corporate spy and getting people to tell you information that they're trained not to give, that oftentimes yeah. they sign uh, employment contracts that forbid them to release this information, mm-hmm. uh, extremely difficult, extremely difficult. And in terms of the intelligence that we were looking for and corporate spies are looking for today, you know, every spying project, every corporate espionage project is bespoke, it's custom, and we're trying to find out anything and everything that we can obtain uh, on a corporation that's going to benefit their competitors. You know, you think about if you could get the playbook for your football team, you know, the Sunday game, if you could get the playbook on Thursday or Friday and you knew every play they were going to run, you knew every formation, you knew everything about, you know, imagine how valuable that would be. Oh, damn, you're you're Bill Belichick. <laughs> right, exactly. Was this less about, I guess, insider trading and what stocks they were buying versus sort of what major moves they were going to make in M&A? Like, what exactly was the goal? Was it to get to a trade before them or something else. Remember, uh, you know, we're talking now early '90s um, and into the aughts, and this is the era pre-LinkedIn. So, mm-hmm. a lot of times, articles that are coming out about the book describe me as LinkedIn before LinkedIn was invented, right? <laughs> because one of the things people uh, are able to do today is they're able to uh, not not a hundred percent. I would estimate LinkedIn has about sixty percent of available executives, accurate information. Um, But for the most part, um, back then, there was no way to determine who was in a group, who ran a group, who the rock stars were in a group, like who were the top three traders on a group, top three salespeople on a team, who were the bankers that had the largest books of business. And (laughs) as you can imagine, all of that information, if your competitors knew who the top people on a team of 30, who the top five people were, Imagine how valuable that was. So you're you're poaching. These were poaching missions. Uh, that they always started with the talent because that was obviously really important. But then what we would do is we would build out the organizational chart. We would know everybody at a team. Not ninety eight percent of the people. Not ninety nine percent of the people. A hundred percent of the people in a group. Their exact titles. The reporting structures. What they did. And then we would layer on that what the group was up to, what the projects they were working on, were they expanding, were they hiring, were they opening a new office in, in uh, Charlotte, were they uh, working on a deal with, you know, anything and everything that, our, that competitors would want to know that would give them, you know, basically, in, you know, in, intelligence that's going to benefit them. So LinkedIn is like a gift. 
<laughs> totally. Yeah. Although the sixty percent is interesting. He's saying forty percent are not on LinkedIn, which means there's still a lot of opportunity. Yeah, but still, LinkedIn is a gift because now you have leads into people to actually talk to to be able to get up the, the ladder a lot quicker, right? That's really an astute comment because when LinkedIn came out, like each time technology would change. You know, we we corporate spies were like, ah, it's over for us. That's the end of that. <laughs> and and everything that happened just made our job easier. You know, initially we were really concerned um, as we moved into the computer era. All of the organizational charts, which had formerly been on paper, became digitized and entered into the corporate directories. Well, wow, that was unbelievable because now I could get anyone, and still can get anyone in any far-flung satellite office, Topeka, Kansas, Dublin, Ireland, wherever some person may be, that if they have access to the corporate directory, which most do, the intranet, I'm able to get somebody to tell me information on the top team in Silicon Valley or the top team in New York from Topeka, Kansas or Dublin, Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And then, and then in terms of LinkedIn, you know, yeah, LinkedIn became a source of people to, you know, we would be able to go, okay, well, this is a junior person. They're new with the firm. They may not, you know, may not have the same kind of level of understanding of the the importance of keeping secrets. You know, one of the things we're seeing in, in the world now is, you know, younger people have grown up in an era where uh, privacy doesn't exist as much, right? And they're also generally more comfortable with that idea. So a lot of times, younger employees, junior employees don't realize how valuable this information can be. And if you get them on their phone, which of course is difficult, but if you get them on their phone, they're often willing to tell you a lot of things uh, that they should never, ever tell you. As a matter of fact, a lot of times, I can't get young people on the phone to stop talking. <laughs> young, dumb, and full of cum is your best friend as a, a corporate spy. Is that what you're saying? I would say so. Okay, listener, how can you help your employees become more productive? I have answers. How about automating manual and repetitive tasks, giving meaning to data, then allowing that data to actually drive decisions. And how about matching people to your jobs quicker? Well, wait, the Chad and Cheese has a new LLM? No, Cheeseman, I'm talking about text kernel. Ah, okay. That makes more sense. What I'm hearing is the groundbreaking concept of, wait for it, yeah, simplicity. <laughs> Seriously, though, seriously, text kernel cuts through the complexities like a tortilla chip through some hot nacho cheese. Oh, my God. Really? Nacho references already. Anyways, text kernel brings efficiency and productivity to your operations. Text kernel seamlessly unifies your tools and data to drive efficiencies and success. Text kernel is creating new opportunities for your recruitment journey. Kind of like adding guac to my barbacoa burrito. Oh, my God. How about extracting meaningful insights from data? I mean, that, that's something. Swiftly matching yeah. people with jobs. Automating repetitive tasks. Who knew such advanced concepts were even possible in the land of human resources? Uh, we did, Chad. We did. Dude, wrap it up. I'm a little hungry. Imagine that. Uh, okay, listener. Get ready to use today's tech to drive efficiencies and productivity. Visit textkernel.com. That's T-E-X-T-K-E-R-N-E-L.com. Mmm, nachos. <laughs> 
you'd have a part of the book about flirting for information. So it sounds like finding someone young and impressionable is a, is your key asset. I assume you don't just call up the front desk and say, "Who's the CFO and who are the you know the executives below him and who's below them?" Is that typically the strategy, and is that the current strategy for finding out corporate information? Yeah, I think what most people don't realize is the amount of research that goes into making an espionage call or a series, you know, basically to target a firm, we would do a tremendous amount of research before we would ever consider picking up the phone, right? We want to know everything that's going on with that firm. We're reading the recent press releases. We're studying their stock price. We're aware, did the football team win the day before? Did they lose the day before? Was there a trade that happened? Was there something that happened in the city? Like whatever information is going on, that gives us a real world picture that we can utilize that information in our call, trying to establish rapport, trying to create this connection with the person on the other end of the phone, who of course has been trained to never release this kind of information. It's certainly not over the telephone, right? And so we would do all of that research before we would ever even dare picking up the phone because that research enables you to get that information. And a lot of times you've only got one or two shots at this information. And if you blow it, now you can't get the information. And I'm here to tell you, I didn't just get the information 90% of the time. I didn't get it 95% of the time. I got the information 99.9999999% of the time. <laughs> that's, that's called a success rate, Chad. That's pretty good. You're talking about all these, all this research and whatnot, but there were also tools that were out there that helped you, I guess would say you could use fear and then also an individual's kind of like emotions or wanting to help in this case, Y2K. And this was a tool for you in your group to be able to actually play off what was happening to everybody and what everybody was fucking scared of happening was the earth stopping because of Y2K. You use this to your benefit. Talk about that. How did you, how would you use something like that? Well, I can't take credit for that idea. That was my, the, my buddy, my college roommate's brother uh, in the bookies packs. And he's the guy who got me the job and he's the guy that figured out Y2K. Um, he figured out that everybody was panicked. Everybody was freaked out. And he would just say he was working on Y2K and people would go, oh, my God, are we going to be OK? And he'd say, calm down, <laughs> calm down. It's going to be fine. Um, but we are having some issues and we're finding that we need to re-input a lot of information into the Internet. And so here's the information I need from you because we have to re-put it into the Internet. It's going to be so much work. <laughs> oh, and, and people would feel sorry for us. They would say, oh, my God, that sounds horrible. Sure. What do you need? Anything to save us from Y2K. <laughs> yep, that's exactly what it was. Since we're on technology, I want to go back to the people who aren't on LinkedIn. And I think the popular sentiment is that a lot of IT professionals are not on LinkedIn for obvious reasons. They don't want to get calls from recruiters. How has the finding people game changed without them being on LinkedIn? And also, if everyone's org chart is online, is it more about sort of technology secrets and what people are doing from a tech perspective? I mean, we talk a lot about AI and automation. I assume that getting technology is a prime piece of content that you can provide to clients. How has the game changed knowing that uh, a lot of people still aren't on LinkedIn? Well, that's a great question. I think it's surprising to a lot of people how many, uh, we call them passive candidates, right? These are people that are not on LinkedIn. These are people that are 
that are killing it where they are. They've got a great job. They're rock stars. They don't want to be on LinkedIn because they don't want to be inundated with requests from amateur hour headhunters, right? Executive <laughs> recruiters, right? <laughs> you know, all the people that are smiling and dialing, they, they don't have time for that. And I'm here to tell you that my clients were the largest firms in the world and also the largest executive recruiting firms in the world, right? You look at the top, the list of top 10 executive recruiting firms, you know, nine of them were my clients. And these clients were only interested, almost exclusively only interested in the passive candidates that were killing it where they were and were not on LinkedIn. And so were really, really difficult for people to find and for people to know about. And so even today, corporate spying, trust me, it's alive and well. And one of the main things that these firms are looking for, these executive recruiting firms are looking for, are these passive candidates. So the information that you were going after wasn't always candidates, right? No, it wasn't always candidates. Sometimes it was pricing strategies, you know, new products. Think about, again, Steve Jobs, legendary CEO of Apple. He would not allow his designers to be listed in the Apple directory, right? Because he was, af- he was afraid of them being poached. Imagine if we were able to get the names of the, let's just say, iPad design team in the early days of the iPad design. You can imagine how much that information was worth. Right? That would be worth billions and billions of dollars. Oh, no question. But this is, and some of this information in the way that you're going after, this is this was illegal, right? Illegal? Yeah. I'm sorry, you cut out there. Illegal? I couldn't hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever feel like, oh, shit, you know, we're going to get caught? Did you ever have a situation where it was like, okay, we got to close this down. We got to go into hiding. Scatter, scatter. Yeah. yeah. Any of that happen at all? Uh, Yes, yes. I'm able to write the book now because I obviously don't spy anymore. I wouldn't be a very good spy if I outed myself as a spy and continued to spy, right? Uh, that would be pretty dangerous. And so the statute of limitations has expired on whatever potential crimes I may or may not have committed. Um, <laughs> but back in the day, there was a moment and there were a number of these, uh, you know, close calls. But there was one in particular where uh, my buddy Pax and I were being hunted by uh, a laundry list of authorities, the uh, FBI, U.S. Marshals, Secret Service, uh, on and on, who got wind of our activities, um, but they actually thought that we were the most famous hacker in the world. And at the time, every organization was after this individual. And while they were on this hunt for this guy, they stumbled on our trail and uh, were coming after us. And that was really frightening. And especially it was really frightening when they did finally catch this uh, hacker who was arrested uh, as a domestic terrorist put in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day and spent a number of years in jail. Holy shit. Yeah, there were some moments that were like, oh my God, I cannot believe we're going to go down for this survival job for actors. <laughs> you mentioned the value of uh, Apple's you know, uh, tech team. Put it in context, the kind of money companies are spending or willing to spend for information. Like, I assume you weren't you know, filing your taxes in a typical way, but can you give us some perspective on what bank accounts look like for people like you? Well, you know, it's funny. When I started doing the job, I was getting $8 an hour, uh, <laughs> you know, which, which is pretty crazy. Uh, uh, you know, but again, you know, we didn't know what we were getting into. And when we started... The job was a lot more innocent than it became. You know, we would, in the beginning, we were posing as students. We were working on a paper 
And then over time, it morphed to we were literally mimicking the voices of CEOs of major firms, pretending we were them to get (laughs) individuals to tell us information. And uh, so by the end, I went from $8 an hour to millions of dollars a year that I was making. Damn. Wow. Damn. (laughs) That's not hateful. Are those 80s dollars or are we talking current dollars? Well, current dollars, man, they might, might be tens of millions. Okay. That'll buy a lot of beer. <laughs> you talked about Pax. Uh, what was your relationship? Because it seems like Pax not just got you the job, but he was at this point really a coworker. What was your relationship with your peers? Did you like brainstorm spitball things? I mean, how did you actually interact? Did you work together? How was that relationship? Well, Pax and I, you know, we were friends, we were co-workers, uh, and we developed this kind of brotherly rivalry, yeah. right? Where, uh, you know, he, you know, he came up with Y2K and he was constantly throwing it in my face because he, he taught me the ploy and he was constantly throwing it in my face that if it wasn't for Y2K, I wouldn't be getting this. If it wasn't for Y2K, <laughs> I wouldn't be getting that, right? So then I had to develop a ploy and I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm going to all of a sudden, I'm like, compliance, compliance. You know, all of a sudden, we start to hear compliance. And so I developed this compliance ploy because, you know, when you hear, you know, you've got the, you know, the head of compliance on the phone. Oh, my God. Well, what's going on? What, you know, oh, we're all, we're all site meeting with the U.S. regulators. We got a crisis situation here. We need, oh, my God. Well, how can I help, right? You know, in America, we're always taught, especially in corporate corporations, corporate culture, be a good corporate teammate, you know, uh, you know, you know, you know, help out, do what you need to do. And so all of a sudden you got the head of compliance on the phone offsite in Washington, D.C. Oh, my God, what do you how can I help? Right. And so that was the one that I came up with. So Pax and I were constantly going back and forth, uh, sort of, you know, butting heads. But we were also helping each other and we were driving each other to develop kind of more and more sophisticated ploys that was getting uh you know, just greater amounts of intelligence. I mean, uh, you know, sometimes uh, it was shocking the uh, the intelligence that we would determine, sometimes very salacious information that we, you know, a lot of times we weren't even going after things. But again, we'd get a talkative person on the phone that believed we were a senior executive. What would they not, what, what would they not tell us? They were willing to tell us anything, you know, oh my God, did you hear uh, so-and-so got a DUI? Boy, how, you know, how, how's that going to get cleaned up? That, you know, boy, I hope the press doesn't find out about that, right? So all of this stuff uh, that we would be finding out about the corporate family, so to speak, you know, the executive, the executives, uh, it was really eye-opening to say the least. I think uh, the recruiters that are listening have some tips and tricks, the legality of which is in question maybe on some of them, but they, they have some takeaways, I think, from this conversation. And, and on the flip side of the recruiters, we have, we have job seekers. And it seems like there's not a week that goes by that there's not a new scam for job seekers. Someone's trying to get information from them. Um, but I also feel like there may be some tips that you have to help a job seeker get into a company um, in, a, in a legitimate way. Do you have any tips for job seekers, whether it's what to look out for or how to get your foot in the door of a company that you want to work for? Absolutely. I mean, one thing I think it's important to recognize is not every job interview is a legitimate interview. And that doesn't mean that the, the recruiter that reaches out to you isn't legitimate. But a lot of times what executive recruiters do is they interview a whole bunch of people at a at their client's biggest rival or one of their client's biggest rivals, again, is a fishing expedition to get you to reveal information, right? Because now they're interviewing you. And let's just say you're a 
relatively junior person in some department. And all of a sudden you get an interview to be the head of this big area at a rival firm. Well, in the back of your mind, you're probably going, boy, this would be a huge job for me. God, this would be a ginormous jump in everything, salary, you know, title, whatever. Well, you know, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And so what a lot of times uh, sophisticated executive recruiters are doing is they're bringing you in as a ruse to get you to reveal information about your company. So, Bill, we're, you know, boy, we're so excited. We heard about you. We heard you're a really uh, talented up and coming. Uh, Tell us a little about your firm and and how do they do X, Y, and Z? And and how do they structure the bonus? And and how do they do this? And and what are they up to these? You know, and, uh, you know, and it sounds like they're there to interview you for a job. And really, it's a ruse to get you to reveal information that's going to benefit their client. Wow. Oh, yeah. And they have you coming to them. Correct. That's nasty. Yeah. Oh, damn. All right. All right. All right. I'm going to finish off with a couple of acting questions because I got to dig into this. We don't get a (laughs) chance to talk to many actors around here, B-list or otherwise. What was your favorite role? My favorite role. Oh, my gosh. Uh, My favorite role was I did a play uh, off Broadway. So I'm going to go to the theater because that's kind of where I started. That was my first love. But I did a play off Broadway with Callista Flockhart. Uh, You remember Callista um, from the TV show Allie McBeal? Yep. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And she's, of course, married to uh, Harrison Ford for many years now. And Callista and I did this wonderful play off Broadway that ran for months and months, got a rave review in The New Yorker, um, and it was just a really great time. We were young, young actors in New York, and when you do a play in New York and it's a hit play, kind of the talk of the town, and uh, we would just get invited. There was this one woman who came to see the show, and she was an older woman, and she sort of fell in love with me and she would host parties for us. And when I say parties, like $5,000 restaurant parties, which, you know, today would be a fifteen twenty thousand $20,000 party, just simply because we were in this hit show and she wanted to date me. And uh, so it was just very, it was a very heady time. Crazy. So I uh, also understand that you uh, did a little something with OJ. My question is, first and foremost, what was that? And second, what was your feeling when you turned on the TV and saw OJ in a white Bronco evading the police? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I got hired to do this exercise video. My manager called me one day and, uh, you know, I was a young actor, needed work. And he said, hey, I got this exercise video. I said, hey, Bobby, uh, I, I, you know, I can't dance. I can't do, you know, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm horrible. He said, no, 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 no. It's an exercise video. It's for OJ Simpson. And I went, whoa. Please tell me spandex was involved. In this <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and of course, you know, you know, growing up, OJ, you know, his time was a little bit before my time, but still, I, you know, knew he was a you know huge star and had watched him in movies and on Monday Night Football. And so I was really excited to do this uh, exercise video. And I was told it was, you know, we were going to do push-ups, pull-ups, play and pick up basketball. And when I show up for this thing, it's in a basically dance studio and I'm introduced to the choreographer and I'm like, oh my God, we are going to have to like do dance, dance. <laughs> oh, hell no. Hell no. So we start doing these kind of aerobics moves and uh, the choreographer basically wants to fire me because he can see I'm just horrific. But OJ vouches for me. OJ says, oh no, hey, Robert's making me look good. <laughs> and, and and because I was so bad and making OJ look like he was a really good dancer, uh, they, they, they couldn't fire me. And OJ took a liking to me because I was so bad at dancing. Uh, 
And so during this shoot, which was for a couple of days, you know, I, he just bonded to me. Um, he showed me this pilot that he had just shot for NBC where, wait for it, he played a knife expert. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we have this great experience. And I'm like, wow, OJ's my friend. He's going to get me on this pilot. The series is called Frogman. And then, of course, a few days later, uh, these terrible murders happen. And I see OJ in the Bronco. And I, you know, I, I literally was watching it with my jaw agape. I could not believe uh, that this guy I'd just been hanging out with, who is my new best friend, uh, had had theoretically murdered two people. Fuck. All right. I, I can't let you go without this question. Let's let's play fuck them, marry them, and kill them. Of all the stars that you've worked with, play the game. Who would you shag? Who would you marry? And who would you kill? Go. Oh, my God. Uh, well, I would definitely kill Madonna. <laughs> Because my wife worked for Madonna for a number of years, and Madonna was one of those celebrities that you weren't allowed to look at, right? You hear these stories about, oh, uh, so-and-so, when you're on set with them, you can't look at them. Forget about talking to them. You can't even have your eyeballs on them as if they're royalty, right? Madonna Jesus. was one of those. Okay. Um, in terms of Mary, and hopefully I would be able to have sex and then marry her, Celia Ward is this gorgeous actress. Yes. Um, yes. You may remember her. She played Harrison Ford's wife in The Fugitive. And, and she's just, you know, she was in Gone, Gone Girl and... Uh, former Miss Mississippi, just the sweetest, kindest, most beautiful woman ever. And then fuck her. Oh, boy, man. Uh, a long list. There's a long list. There was that time on the Golden Girls. <laughs> when, uh... Well, there's a long list of, of actresses that I do sleep with in Rue. So let me just leave it so your listeners may be intrigued to find out who's on that list. Oh, nice. I'll just say I'll just say J-Lo is a possibility. Oh, nice. Well, everybody, Robert, dude, we appreciate you stopping by. If somebody wants to buy Ruse, where would you send them? I think go to my website, uh, robertkerbeck.com, K-E-R-B-E-C-K, because then you can buy the book wherever you like to buy books from. And there's also a lot of other cool content on there. There's a book trailer. Uh, the book is in, in development for a TV series. So now there's a trailer for that. So there's just a lot of cool stuff you can you can check out. This was awesome. Going to have to have you back during that TV series, my friend. Oh, I'd love to come back. I'd love to come back. Awesome. Thanks, Robert. Chad, another one in the can. We out. We out. Thank you for listening to, what's it called? The podcast. The Chad. The cheese. Brilliant. They talk about recruiting. They talk about technology. But most of all, they talk about nothing. Just a lot of shout-outs of people you don't even know. And yet, you're listening. It's incredible. And not one word about cheese. Not one. Cheddar. Blue. Nacho. Pepper Jack. Swiss. There's so many cheeses and not one word. So weird. Anywho, be sure to subscribe today on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way, you won't miss an episode. And while you're at it, visit www.chatcheese.com. Just don't expect to find any recipes for grilled cheese. It's so weird. We out! You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. 
Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.